I really cannot emphasize how grateful I am to be here, not only for obvious personal reasons, not only for reasons of analyzing or getting at least an insight into what goes in this big, beautiful and more and more, at least some good news in the world, important country. Uh, I was really shocked, this was totally new to me, by the loss of Manu, the book, and on the other hand, uh, on the other side, uh, 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 Ambedkar, now who is pretty much uncovered, as we said, unknown in Europe. But uh, I will talk more tomorrow about it, about how I think he was totally right against Gandhi. In how he, what Gandhi didn't see or didn't want to see, Ambedkar put it very nicely where he says, no, there are no castes without outcasts, as they put it, no? You cannot solve the problem of untouchables by giving them their proper place, yo, you are the children of God, recognizing them, and so on, no? It doesn't work like that. But more about this tomorrow. I would say that the reason uh, the loss of Manu fascinated me so much, it's really like a detective story, I couldn't stop reading it. It's not, this is one aspect that you already emphasized, this where is ideology in what you are doing? I will try to return to it later. Here I'm a little bit critical of the Marx you quoted, this, uh, you know, the difference between what you are doing and what you are thinking. But for me, uh, the problem is that the illusion is, as you said, in what, in what the illusion is in what you are doing. For example, take a kind of a Brahmin liberal here, no? He probably would say, no, I respect untouchables, blah, blah, blah. But then the way he walks, he eats, who cleans his sheep, and so on. There, the illusions are, ideology is in what he does. That's one aspect, more about this tomorrow. I want now to start with another think why feature which absolutely fascinated me, and I loved it in Manu, the book. This, the way it relates the rule, the big law, prohibition, and exception. If I may isolate what I perceive as whenever it deals with some big rule, law, prohibition. <coughs> this is almost a model I discovered. First, it states a prohibition. Then it implicitly accepts that we all violate this prohibition. And then it regulates exceptions, violations. Like, just now I remembered it. Like, it says, Veda priests, priests should study Veda, not trade. Okay, obviously they were all trading. Because then they say, you can trade, but only certain things. For example, you shouldn't trade, sell, buy sesame seeds. <coughs> then it says, you can do it, but if you do it, at least do it on the right day, not on Sunday, and so on and so on. So it goes almost endlessly, only at the very end, when practically all versions are exhausted, it finally says, but if you do, in spite of all this, then you will be reborn as a worm in a dog sheet or whatever. This is the law. <laughs> but I like this idea how, and this is a profound lesson that I will first start to elaborate. The great illustration of this wisdom of the loss of Manu will be, not now in three minutes, will be Casablanca, the film. I will try to show why. How, again, uh, uh, loss our systems of prohibitions and so on, do not so much regulate, it's not just what is prohibited, what is not prohibited. It's, it, they accept that we violate prohibition. The point is to regulate violations. This is where the law really ho holds you. And uh, how does this bring us to Hollywood? 
I would like to, now you are born two minutes, first I would like to show you from a film which for many people, more even than Gone with the Wind or whatever, stands for Hollywood as it were at its zero level, Casablanca. And it's an honest Hollywood left liberal film. The proof of its relative honesty is that a couple of years later in the McCarthy era of witch hunt, practically all of them were blacklisted and so on. So lights. Uh -huh. No, 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 just a little bit more. That they describe, this is the scene. You don't have to know anything. Uh, but just give you a vague idea, about two-thirds into the film, the lady, played by Ingrid Bergman, comes to, this is not her husband, this is her ex-love, Humphrey Bogart, Rick, to his room and asks him for some visa letter for her and her husband and so on and so on. They have a conversation which gets more and more passionate. Then they... Embrace and then, please. Watch, just watch carefully, it's just one minute. Okay, yes, here. Go, here, here. Sound. You know, try to get some sound. It's not Okay, stop. This is ideology at its absolutely purest. Why? I'm not talking about even what they are talking and so on. As a greedy old dirty man, my first point of interest is what probably interests all of us. Did they do it or not? Then two and a half seconds where they jump from embracing to this abstract uh, shot of the Casablanca Tower with the light turning around and then back to the room. The question is, is this real time going on or is this uh, just, or does that image stand for the whatever you want, I don't know what are your ideas, from 10 minutes to one hour for <laughs> Why? Why is this so important? Because it's done in a very systematic way. If you look at this scene, knowing a little bit about Hollywood, this is the case code Hollywood, you know, strictly codified. Even more codified in a way than in Stalinist Soviet <coughs> Everything was codified. If you don't believe me, check it up. In the Hollywood of 1940s, if you see even a married couple in a bedroom, the beds has to be separated, have to be separated, the couple has to be in pyjamas, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, what happens here? The film first gives a whole series of signs, codified signs, thanks very much, let me that details for them, that they did it. First, in classical Hollywood, when you embrace, when two lovers embrace, and then you have a slow fade out, this means they did it. This was totally codified. <laughs> Second thing, I think that uh, at the end he drinks or smokes or whatever, this was also strictly codified. Like, you know that proverb that we have in Europe at least, uh, what's the second and the third most pleasant thing in the world? The drink before and the cigarette afterwards. <laughs> no, like uh, another side. Then even the, the the power, kind of a primitive phallic symbol. So you get a series of signals they did it. But then at the same time you get a series of signals that they didn't do it. The same conversation seems to go on. There is no disturbed bed or whatever. They are both fully dressed and so on. And I claim the film is not simply inconsistent. 
the villain tricks you, the spectator, as if you are under some kind of a superego or what, in Lacanian terminology we would have called the, rather more precisely, the ego ideal or the big other control. The film treats you, if we may imagine it, in a kind of prosopopeia, treats you as a person and addresses you with the following monologue. I know you would like to have your dirty pleasures, but at the same time, you are afraid. You want to appear clear in the eyes of power. So I will enable you, I will give you both levels. On the one hand, I will give you all the dirty signals so that you can imagine whatever they were doing. At the same time, I will give you a cover-up story, so that if your moral authority asks you, how can you enjoy such a dirty story, you can say, what? Look, nothing happened. They are both <laughs> and so on. And this was, to me, if you ask me, uh, quite a big lesson. I studied a little bit more Hollywood, and then I discovered that how strictly this worked in uh, Hollywood case censorship. That every prohibition, or in a codified way, uh, systematically generated that prohibition. For example, in classical Hollywood, if you wanted to signal that a guy is homosexual, it is totally codified. Uh, it's when a guy uses perfume. Like if you saw Maltese Falcon, the desert, the Peter Lorre character, somebody, the detective, Humphrey Bogart, says, oh, what perfume do you wear? Means you are gay. <laughs> Second, if they say about a woman, you come from New Orleans, it means prostitution. <laughs> so it is incredibly how, there is, I don't want to spend too much time, but there is Joseph Sternberg, the Hollywood director who was the past, uh, uh, the patriarch over uh, Marlene, uh, over Marlene Dietrich. He did a movie with her, and there is he reports in his memoirs about a wonderful debate between him and Joseph Brin, who was uh, uh, the, the case code functionary. And Joseph Brin asked him, "You have here in scenario a scene where it says uh, there follows a romantic interlude. They are in a, they are with some horses in." Uh, there in, and then, then on, a, on, a, in a, on a garden there is a romantic interlude and very brutally Joseph Brin asked Sternberg cut the crap do they fuck or not Sternberg was shocked he said finally yeah they fuck and then Joseph Brin okay now I know now we will call it codified we will precisely put it and so on and so on why is this so important to see how uh, some of my even leftist friends in cultural studies think that all this dirty background is something subversive. Well, the way they would have read this scene would have been, you see, you have the official ideology, and then you have the subversive <coughs> fantasies, sex, whatever you want, and so on. This is my first very simple but extremely important thesis. There is nothing subversive in these obscene fantasies. They are absolutely part of the power system. Power is not only the explicit text of power. Power is also, you know, for example, your own Stalin, which is maybe greater than the Russian Stalin, the director from 
Kerala or what? You sent me. Yeah, okay. Ah, you see, you missed a nice thing. You didn't know. <laughs> oh, you know, your Stalin. Uh, he had this movie about Dalits, uh, no? Yes. Where he, he has this same wonderful scene. He first asks, or the camera, whatever, uh, small pupils in some school uh, uh, who are Dalits, like, how are you treated? And they all say, we are obliged to sit in the back and don't have the right to debate, whatever. And then he asks the teacher, the teacher says, no, these are all lies, absolutely not, and so on and so on. So, uh, in other words, uh, ideology doesn't function as the open text, you know. Uh, this is the perversity of today's ideology, and you are not unique here. I'm not now playing this game of you primitive Indians. If anything, we, Western Europeans, Americans, are worse. How, if there was some old time where ideology was the oppressive, explicit system, and we were able to be subversive by violating it, subverting it. Today it's almost the opposite. This is why, let me go on, this is why army life always fascinated me tremendously. I don't know how is it with you, do you still have, no, you have a professional army, you have a professional yeah, Okay, <coughs> when I was young, in still ex-Yugoslavia, we didn't have a professional army. And it was... Uh, for me, quite a formative experience to serve the army for a year. Because my first song was precisely, you know, I'm, I must say psychologically, as a private person, I'm a kind of a fanatical, okay, I wouldn't say fascist, but almost, in the sense of, I like order, I like people to obey, and so on. I like order. But, no, so I expected, my God, it will be paradise, the army. And I immediately got, that's not the army. The real army has... The surface, they pretend that it's order, but beneath it is all one big chaos full of sexual obscenities and so on. And it took me a long time to discover again how there is nothing subversive in this. It was even worse, that's now the crucial rule, if you as a soldier violated some explicit prohibitions, you fell asleep on guard, you were drunk, whatever, no problem, they say, ha it's human. <laughs> if you violated these implicit prohibitions, if you didn't participate in all these obscenities, obscene rituals, and so on, then you were really excluded. That was the true scene. And let me tell you a story which I'm sure you don't know because it's, I used it in one of my marginal, less known books from years ago. Uh, this was my formative, almost mystical experience, epiphany in the army. I was in a small group of military barracks, small one where uh, we didn't have a hospital. We just had a one medical room where a guy who was some kind of a technician, a little bit trained, slept and had there also, you will see why this is important, a small wash basin with water pipe and a big mirror, and you will see why this is important. Behind the mirror there were stuck uh, pictures of this in pre-pornographic times, you know, these half-dressed girls in bikini, whatever. Okay, so once a week, we soldiers who claimed that we had problems with our health, we were called there, and we were, it was a collective examination. We were all sitting in a row, in one room, and then one after the other, we were called up to the doctor who came from a central military hospital, and he asked us what is wrong. So then there was a problem. One of us stood up and said, I have pain in my penis. This already was very problematic, because if in Serbo-Croat you say, I have pain in my penis, in Serbo-Croat, this means a very vulgar 
way of saying fuck off. I don't care. <laughs> but then the soldier insisted, but I really mean it. Okay, the doctor told him, show us. So in front of us, the soldier undressed, and the doctor asked him, okay, what's wrong with your penis? The soldier said, I cannot put the skin down, it hurts, it's too tight. The doctor told him, do it. The soldier did it, the doctor said, but you can do it, you are lying. No, said the soldier, it's when I have erection that I cannot do it. Now come. Then the doctor said, okay, masturbate, show us. The soldier in front of all of us started to masturbate, but of course it was a comedy, he didn't get erection. So then the doctor took those photos, you remember, and showed them, sorry for you to impersonate, <laughs> and, and told him, look, what dress, what dress, and it became an orgy. The soldier started to laugh, the doctor started to laugh, the doctor cast a glance at us, laughed with wings, it was a total obscenity. And it took me some time to get it. This is how power functions. That this was part of power. There was absolutely nothing subversive in it. This what we call the, this male bonding of the army. is sustained precisely by these shared obscenities. It's the same with homosexuality. In the unit where I was, usually people say, oh, army is homophobic. It's much more ambiguous. On the one hand, it was extremely homophobic. If a soldier was discovered to be effectively homosexual, he was dismissed before being dismissed. He was beaten by other soldiers every night. It was horrible. But that's one side of the story. The other side is that it became a jargon in my unit. To, For example, in the morning, we didn't uh, greet each other, good morning or whatever, but smoke mine or I'll smoke yours, which was a coded way to say I'll suck yours, fellatio, and so on. It was, you know, you see this paradox, explicit homosexuality vanished, but at the same time, all the daily life was totally penetrated, permitted by homosexual innuendos. So, just the last point here. I am not saying now this is, uh, that obscenity is always in the serving the power. It is, but it's much more complex. There also is, I claim, obscenity, which signals, and here it's difficult to draw a distinction, but it can be done. Obscenity which, uh, how should I put it, guarantees or bears witness to the fact that we broke the barrier and are really close to each other. It also happened to me in an, uh, in the, while, uh, while I was serving the army, an even nicer adventure, totally crazy. My best friend there was an Albanian soldier, because it was a little bit of elitism. He was in lecture, I was, we talked a lot. And we wanted to become friends. So how did we, you know, one thing is this politeness, you know, like you must hate them, I would hate them. Foreigners came here in India, what beautiful food, Taj Mahal and so on. This is racism for me. How did we make a step further? Uh, one morning, this soldier approached me and said, I fuck your mother, I screw your mother. I know what this was. This was an offer of friendship. Like, let's pass to intimate obscenities. And he expected from me uh, a, 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 an appropriate reply. Believe me, I don't have problem with it. I immediately answered him, go on after I finish with your sister. No. And then we embraced each other, we were friends. Now comes the beauty. 
it seems even intellectuals, this doesn't mean that from now on we all the time talk just dirty stuff and so on. Never. We had only, he was also a philosopher, intellectual conversations. Just to remind ourselves that we are friends, it became codified. Every morning when we greeted each other, instead of good morning or that, I smoke yours or whatever, without any irony smile, he looked at me and said when he noticed me, Mother, I said, sister. <laughs> Without any smile, it was just a reminder we are truly friends. <laughs> so this is, for me, the problem. Obscenity is, it should neither be, and again, in ex-Yugoslavia, since you still remember it, the Tito Street, I was told here, I think the proof that up to a point it did work, this brotherhood of all nations, where the exchange of dirty, obscene jokes. How did it work? We were not telling to each other jokes against each other. Each nation in ex-Yugoslavia was uh, identified by a certain racist cliché. And we gladly assumed this cliché and made fun of ourselves. When I met a Serb friend, I told him a joke about us Slovenes. He told me a joke. simple, stupid jokes, but they were a means of actual solidarity. For example, I don't know, Montenegro people, Montenegro, no, now it's a state, small state, uh, they, their racial identity was that they are lazy, really lazy. At the same time, they are part of the earthquake territory. There are often earthquakes there. So what's the standard Montenegro joke? How does a Montenegro boy masturbate? He digs a hole in the earth, puts the penis in, and wait for the earthquake. He's even too lazy to move his hands. But you, you see the point. The point is that this wasn't racism. That was so wonderful. You know, instead of this politically correct, anti-racist, oh, horror, let's forget racist cliches, let's talk about what we really are. No, we gladly assumed the cliches and played with them. A proof. When ethnic tensions really started to explode in ex-Yugoslavia, these jokes disappeared. It's kind of a proof for me that uh, it worked. Did you see, for example, that American liberal film? It's not a great film, but it makes a nice point about this with Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, and Jack Nicholson, a few good men. There, it deals with the same topic. That's nice. The topic of the film is code red, which is an unwritten military rule that you can beat a soldier who doesn't behave in a solidary way. But it's a rule which everyone follows, but nobody admits publicly. So that's my first lesson on ideology. Don't focus on what is explicitly declared to be the ruling principle, the law, the value. Include the way you are supposed to violate the rule. And this is where things get really interesting. Did you notice that the rules that we obey and which mark our belonging to a certain group, like if you know the rules you are in, are always complex rules. In what sense complex? Not simply that there are many, but like you know a rule, but then if somebody tells you this is our rule, you know there is always then an ambiguity. Am I really supposed to follow this rule or am I supposed to violate this rule? If I'm supposed to violate this rule, how? This is why all those instructions, you know, when people still followed manners, today they do it less and less. You had all these uh, schools which 
taught ordinary lower class people how to behave in higher circles. But they always fail. When you met the really rich, you was all, you, it was always, the effect was always, you are an idiot. Why? Because you were taught the rules, but you were not taught how to violate the rules. And here things become interesting, because it's not only the violation in the negative sense that the rule prohibits something, and then you are secretly called to violate it. Like, this is the case with most sexual rules. When the father tells you, beware of bad women, it means do we prove that you are a man, but discreetly, or whatever, and so on. What I find much more interesting are rules which allow you something, but on con which give you a freedom on condition that you don't use that freedom. <laughs> on condition that... Or they give you a freedom of choice on condition that you make the right choice, as they put it, no? And, uh, here, we don't have time to go with, uh, there are numerous wonderful examples. This is for me ideology at its most elementary, starting with everyday life practices. For example, take apology. Is she popular here, the big West Coast feminist from the United States, Judith Butler? I have very ambiguous relationship with her. Theoretically, we are in polemics. Personally, I have relatively good relations with her. So once I was, in my vulgar style, rude with her. And then I saw she's hurt, so later I called her and apologized. And she told me, really, Slavoj, I know how you are, that you didn't mean it really, no, you owe me no apology, everything is okay. But you see the paradox. Basically, no, the implicit myth of the film is even the October Revolution can be admitted if it creates a good American couple. <laughs> this is, it may appear not, or let's go further. Uh, all catastrophe films. For example, did you see, I really hate it, uh, Armageddon with Bruce Willis and so on. It's really incest. The true story is Bruce Willis has a, have a, has a beautiful, okay, why not, daughter, Liv Tyler, Ben Affleck seduces the daughter. Bruce Willis is furious. And it's clear that the asteroid which threatens the Earth just materializes this paternal incestuous fury. At the end of the film, father accepts Ben Affleck as partner of his daughter, and then he can die, asteroids explodes, the couple is created. It's even the same with, did you see another Hollywood kick, uh, Deep Impact? It's even worse there. It's a daughter played by, uh, played by Tia Leone. A daughter who learns that her father divorced her mother for a younger woman of her own age. And then this gigantic asteroid and so on and so on is basically the dissatisfaction of the daughter. We have, at the end, the central love scene where, when this wave threatens to destroy the United States, her father is, of course, abandoned by his new wife. He's alone on the shore. The daughter comes to him. You see the gigantic wave appearing. The daughter embraces him, says, Oh, daddy, they are both dead. And so on. I think this scene should be read as a repetition of... Uh, classical Hollywood love scene, if you saw that from the early 50s classic, uh, uh, From Here to Eternity. Bert Lancaster, Deborah, yes, making love in small waves. You know, if you have small, if you have an ordinary adultery, there are small waves. If it's incest, the wave is slightly larger. Ruins all of the East Coast. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, 
don't mess with your mother, you will cause a tsunami. <laughs> no, but seriously, but you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying simply the film is not really about uh, whatever, uh, war, war, asteroid, and so on. It's just that what accounts for the attraction of the film is that nonetheless it keeps you cannot say officially the film is about a big event which threatens all humanity and this is just a detailed love story but I think at the deeper level of how you perceive it it's that the, the true point of all of it is, uh, uh, is creation of the couple, the love story I don't have time to go through all of it but let me give you another example it's, here it's a different love it's father and son uh, Steven Spielberg, I really don't like him. <laughs> Almost all his films, uh, mo most of them are the variations, he's the greatest father director that we know, are variations on the motive of father rediscovering, returning to his paternity. That father rediscovering himself as a good father. Even E.T., you will say, what has this to do with e? Ah, take note of a crucial thing. The family of the small boy to whom E.T. appears is a single family, father deserted them. And then I think E.T. is basically a matchmaker. He provides the next Remember the, the last scene of the film, E.T. goes home. I really hate that creature. I mean, my idea was to squash him with that frog-like, disgusting creature. Uh, okay, then uh, you remember, look closely, the scientists are dead. There is one scientist who is good. In the final scene, he already has his hands around mother's shoulder. The family is recreated so E.T. can go home. E.T. is just mediating this. Let's go on. Uh, did you see, for example, Schindler's list? Absolutely the same. Uh, Jews are the children. Children, Schindler. That father paternally embraces and takes care, rediscovers himself as a good father. Take... Uh, uh, Jurassic Park, absolutely the same. At the very beginning of the film, you have a scene where Sam Neill, who is the main character, threatens a child with some dinosaur's uh, uh, teeth, bones, no? And the child is horrified. This is his evil. And then it's, then they escape there, when they are threatened by dinosaurs, then they go up to a tree. During the night, he accepts the two children, embraces them, typically, this bone falls down, and the dinosaurs which approach the tree the next morning are herbivorous. They eat only vegetarian. <laughs> vegetarian, good, and everything. Now let's go even further. Uh, what about uh, the war of the worlds? It's how Tom Cruise, that working class father, rediscovers himself and is accepted as a good father, and so on and so on. It's quite incredible. If you read it in this way, you discover you know, it can be about dinosaurs, it can be like in uh, Empire of the Sun about World War II, it can be about alien invasion, whatever, but uh, the story is the one of the rediscovery of the father. Maybe the clearest example here is, it's not such a big central field, but interesting enigma about a group in Bletchley Park, England, trying to crack the German enigma. But the, the central character has also a traumatic love affair with a beautiful, fatal woman. And in this film, they even openly, it's a little bit ridiculous, say the formula when somebody comments to the hero of the film, telling him even the most uh, difficult 
military enigma, the machine to cipher messages, can be decoded, can be deciphered. But the true enigma that can never be deciphered is a woman, and so on. No. <laughs> well, the whole film is based on this parallel. We can decipher even the most complex German code, woman, never, and so on. No, so, uh, no wonder, now I come to my... You can get slowly, slowly, slowly ready to the... You still have two, three minutes. Yes, to the ultimate example, for me, no wonder it was... Okay, if you... In, uh, if you adjust it to inflation, maybe not, but at least nominally the greatest hit of all times, James Cameron's Titanic. That's an interesting figure. No, it's that film, I hate it. I almost hate it like Avatar, as you mentioned. Why? I claim, again, it's not really a film about the catastrophe of the ship hitting the iceberg. The, the only way to read the film is to connect, to read the accident as an intervention into the love affair between the two of them, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, uh, Kate Winslet, Jake and Rose, I think. Why? Remember the precise moment when the ship hits the ice. It's after the two of them made love down, and then they go up, and uh, that's when it happens. But it's more complex, because if it were to be only this, it would, be, it would have been a simple conservative message of they, uh, although the film is officially liberal, open, they violated the two prohibitions. Uh, they were not married, sexual and class prohibition. She is upper class, he is lower class, so punishment. Uh, it's more complicated. What happens is that when, after making love, they go up, onto the deck, she, Rose, tells him, her new lover, listen, I've decided, I have enough of my rich society, when tomorrow, this is the last night of the ship, when tomorrow we arrive to New York, I will go with you, we will live happily, even if it's poor, I want to live authentically, and so on, and so on. At that point, the ship hits the ice. And I think it's a very wise, cynical message. The true catastrophe would have been for the two of them to really be in New York. After one or two weeks, that would have been the true catastrophe. So the message is to save love. You know, the, the, the film wants to sustain the illusion of only if they were to reach New York, they would be happy. They, they had to... <coughs> They had to sink the ship, no? It's the same as to shock my friends in Europe, Lexis. You remember, you don't remember, I hope you read about it. The so-called Prague Sprint in Czechoslovakia, 68. You know, that liberal communist in power and then Soviet Union brutally intervened. I claim the Soviet Union saved the Prague Sprint. Uh, imagine that the Soviet Union would not intervene. Let's be brutally realist. What would have happened? I think there was no possibility there of a real, let's call it third, authentic, socialist, however you call it way. Two things <coughs> would have happened. Either the communists, liberal communists under Dubček, would have allowed democratization to the end, and I think, again, there was no third option. People would have simply opted for the Western capitalist democracy, or simply the communists would say at a certain point, like they did in Hungary, in uh, Poland, okay, you have your game, stop enough, we have to establish some rules. Again, is that precisely the Soviet intervention, saved by crushing reality, 
save the meat. Now we can dream, oh my God, maybe we missed a great chance. There may have been an authentic uh, socialism there, and so on and so on. So this is one way to read Cameron. No? Catastrophe is here to save love. The true depressive, at least in this way you can have the dream, if it were not for this stupid accident, love. But I claim, and this is the reason why Cameron, I think, you shouldn't be deceived by his, what some people ironically refer to as Hollywood Marxism. You know, Titanic is almost ridiculous. Almost all the upper class people are bad, bad. The lower you go, the more good they are, and so on and so on. No, something, I think that the, the, there is another deeper level of the story, which is the crucial one. That even this love relationship is really a mask. It's an extremely reactionary bit of, first, uh, my God, you know him, he immortalized you, namely the colonialist image of you, Rudyard Kipling, he wrote Kim, no, Kim, yeah. Uh, he also wrote, you know, Captain's Courageous. This very reactionary myth that the rich people live their isolated, infertile, ascetic lives from time to time, they need a little bit of contact with lower classes. They vampirically suck, as it were, the life energy from them. When they are revitalized, you can drop the poor, you can return to your wealth. That's what happens. I think it's basically not a love story, but the story of Rose, an upper-class, high-society-spoiled girl, who, as it were, finds her ego shattered, it's lost, and then the function of the guy, lower class guy, Drake, is literally to restore her ego image. You remember what he does even before they make love. Although he sees her naked, they don't make love, she, he draws her portrait. This is literally reconstituting her ego. After that, what happens? They make love, but here I can one of the most beautiful scenes of the ideology of cinema. This became clear to me when I saw again and again after a friend of mine drew my attention to it, that crucial moment at the end when, you remember, Jake, the guy, dies. He's, they have only a small piece of wood that is placed on it only for one person, so of course he sacrifices himself. Lower, noble lower class is always sacrificed for the rich partners. And she throws us to death. The first thing, but I'm not, yeah, you can go on, you can start, yes. Okay, uh, first, I didn't want to spend too much time, but it's interesting, before he freezes to death, if you don't believe me, listen to, I'm not sure if today, look at the movie again, how he talks to her. She doesn't talk as a lover. He talks as a kind of a preacher. Be true to yourself, be honest, have a good life. This is what a preacher or a psychoanalyst, when he cures you, he gives you the final advices and so on and so on. But now...
reactionary meat with sustenance. And I'm sorry I don't have time to add two things here. The first one is how many films at a very primitive level work at this way. I don't know how popular it was here, one film which in the United States and uh, Europe has an absolutely mythic status, that ridiculous musical, The Sound of Music. <laughs> oh, that's an important film for ideology. <laughs> almost as good as The Loss of Manu. Not as good, but almost. First, uh, did you notice a certain contradiction, if you know a little bit about European imaginary? It's officially a film against fascism, no? How Austria resists Nazi invasion. Okay, but then compare this with how people act and are dressed. You will see that Austrians are dressed as the kind of small local fascists with their, uh, with their, how do you call it, leather cause, their... Uh, they're uh, out of uh, animal skin, sorry? The, the yeah, yeah, and all that, and uh, all these ridiculous Tyrolean costumes or whatever, why? The Nazi guys are, you know, in this kind of tuxedos with thin cigarettes. In other words, they are the occupying Jews, basically, no? So this is, I think, maybe one of the mysteries of this film, that officially anti-fascist, but the texture of the film basically delivers with images exactly the opposite message. It's how Jews destroyed the beautiful, smallest, beautiful, nice fascist Austria. There is another wonderful detail there, which shows how in Europe religion functions, at least Catholic religion. If you saw the film, you must have guessed which is the most embarrassing for me. I was, became red, I couldn't watch it, I was so embarrassed. It's a scene one-third into the film after Sister Maria, played by Julie Andrews, got in love with that uh, the rich guy, Baron, whatever, uh, von Trapp, and cannot stand it, sexually frustrated, and goes back to the monastery. And then she's still I mean, obsessed by love, so she goes to the mother superior and tells her, please, I still dream about that guy, punish me, make me fast make me with myself to get rid of this desire, and then the ultimate obscenity comes. Uh, instead of doing this, the mother superior starts to sing a strange song, which means flying every mountain and so on. And the message is absolutely clear. Go back, seduce the guy, fuck like crazy. I mean, this is how... Catholicism functions. They leave service and then 
you can do whatever you want. This is also the secret, I must be very clear here, although some Catholics hate me for this in Europe. You know, we have these mega-scandals, and it's shocking how they get more and more numerous of priests abusing small boys for pedophilia. First they said, oh, it's one here and there. Now we discover it's dozens, then hundreds. Now in Ireland they admit there, there are thousands of cases. So I'm claiming, you see, what we should see is, I have a good Catholic friend in America, Gary Weiss, who is kind of a critical Catholic who wrote a good book on John Wayne and so on. He investigated it. They told me what is so shocking is how you cannot say, okay, in every institution there are pedophiliacs, there must be a... He told me he encountered a couple of cases where the guy, when he became a priest, was heterosexual. It was by being in the church that he turned... In other words, this pedophilia is clearly something which is the obscene other side, not of individuals, but of church as institution. It's, it's obscene from the, to caricaturize it to the end. I claim that an, in an ideal church seminar, faculty, university. You have, through the day, all the classes, history of Christianity, dogmatics, and then in the evening you have how to seduce boys or whatever. No, it's, it's immanent. It's immanent. It's part of church as the institutional structure. Uh, don't misunderstand me. I had a great admiration for Christianity and so on. But I'm talking now about Catholic Church specifically as an institution, which always played this game of, again, regulating violations. You know, to put it in the terms of the laws of Manu. Don't cheat off your wife, but if you cannot do it otherwise, it's better to, to have a prostitute than divorce, etc. You know, it regularizes all this. Now, let's, uh, let me make another crucial point. Uh, this tension between different levels is not just ideology. It can also work it's much more ambiguous. In a wonderful, even ideological, critical way, it's also the space of art. What do I mean by this? Did you see a film, which for me at least, it's one of the greatest American films of the last 30, 40 years, Robert Altman, Shortcuts. People usually read that film. It tells parallel stories based on Raymond Carver's short stories about, let's call it, desperate everyday life in American middle-class suburbia, Los Angeles. Now, uh, people usually read this film in a pretty primitive way, you know, as some kind of a Marxist critique of... It's true, but you know where is the, the other side of the story, the more optimist part? Not in any ultimate message, but in the very form of the film. This beautiful pluralist film, you know, seven, eight stories, lines interacting in totally contingent ways with different, it can be a catastrophe, it can be a new friendship, this kind of a, if you know Spinoza, Spinozian pluralist open ontology of lucky encounters. So I find this very beautiful, how, what prevents us to read films simply as dark portrayal of alienated, desperate lives, is the very form, the very narrative form of the film has another has another message. My last point is you, or which was of you, I think you already mentioned it, I just want to confirm that how uh, the same ambiguity between the superficial Hollywood Marxism and very reactionary myth beneath, you find it even more 
more radically in James Cameron's last one now, Avatar. Again, it appears progressive. Conflict between an imperialist power and on another planet, kind of a more authentic, connected with nature, tribring, and then the good American who joins forces with the rebels against the empire, getting the princess there, it sounds so progressive. But it's clear, as you draw my attention to that the whole film is, is basically white male Americans' dream. The dream of becoming the leader of an exotic, authentic tribe by marrying their, their princess. It's even very red, like the guy is crippled one. So, you know, you should also read the film as the one who is a cripple in America is nonetheless good enough to get the princess and, and, and become the leader. And also, all this, I'm very suspicious about this ecologically friendly authenticity of the tribe there. I think this is the worst, the most dangerous myth. One way racism functions today is under the guise, appearance of its opposite. You, you idealize others as, you know, like, which is why, if you are winning as a, I hope, some kind of a feminist, I would like to give you, and then if you just allow me some concluding, some concluding, I mean it seriously what I will say now. You are a woman, let's say, you have to choose between two boyfriends. One is a male chauvinist who tells you, listen, women are more, I will work, you clean the apartment, you wash my things, speak to him. Maybe you will turn him around, maybe you can do it. But you have then another boyfriend who tells you something like, I am a male chauvinist, uh, imperialist, I'm too rationalist, exploiting nature. You as a woman are much more holistic. You are in harmonious, dialogic relations. You don't exploit nature. Run away as fast as you can. This is the truly dangerous And this is what my American, not Indians, the other Indians, I have some friends among them. They, I don't want to use the term Native Americans. They told me they hate it. It's, it's politically correct, but it's more, what is, do they mean? They, one of them told me, Native Americans. Does it mean you are cultural, we are natural, native or what? And they told me, wonderful, they told me I prefer to be called Indian, because at least my name is a monument to white man's stupidity, at least. They told me a wonderful thing. They told me, you know how you humiliate us? When you apparently understand us, and it's like when one of us commits a crime, oh, we should understand it, they're oppressed, and so on. You don't even give us the, the dignity of being able to be genuinely evil. <laughs> no? We are like children, you know, we are not responsible. If you are, so, but that's another story. So I want, but let's not get lost here. Let me go on. With, first, I don't have time to go into it, but I want a little bit to make a hint at how things are changing here. Maybe what I don't know what it means, but just I know. Do you notice how the last in the last years Hollywood is consciously, consciously, okay, systematically abandoning this formula of creation of the couple, and I don't think it's a good sign. Uh, well. I'm talking about big hits which determine us ideologically. The other Did side, you, they do, sorry? They do come. 
They do, yes they do, which is why it's an old-fashioned film. But did you see the last James Bond, Quantum of Solace? Did you notice it's the first, till now, it's the big feature of every, at the end you have this, it's even a very nice psychoanalytic dialectic, the rule is James Bond and his girl finally make love, but then they discover they are observed, usually, you know, and then all this ambiguity, will they, uh, I mean, the, the message is for me clear. They just pretend to make love to impress the guests or whatever. Uh, but here, they don't do it. Then, what is supposed to be the absolute hit, which I really hate, all these Dan Brown novels. Did you notice already in Da Vinci Code, no love affair. And it's something very... Uh, Tragic here. In what sense tragic? How would you read? I hope you saw it. Don't read it. I mean, I like Schund, Kitsch, and so on. But it has to be of a certain quality. <laughs> and so, uh, 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 you know what happened? You know the story, no? Uh, uh, all this blah 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 is Robert Langdon, whatever the symbologist, the woman who at the end we discover she's the grand 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 niece, whatever of Jesus Christ, and so on. No sex between the two. That was my idea here. Was it popular also here that X-Files series? Yes. My friend, the British psychoanalyst Darian Leader, provided a wonderful formula for uh, X-Files. He said, why do all these things ha have to happen out there? And said, to cover up the fact that nothing happens here. <laughs> and it's the same in Da Vinci Code. Poor Jesus Christ has to fuck, has to make love to cover up the fact that they don't. <laughs> no? And it's the same then in The Lost Symbol, which is so such a bad novel, I cannot imagine. <laughs> such a bad novel. And interestingly enough, so that you will not say that I dream, in Angels and Demons, which is the last film, in the novel there is sex, in the film it's not. You see how interesting it is? Usually Hollywood does the opposite. It introduces <coughs> sex even when there is no sex. Here it's the opposite, my God. What happens with Hollywood when it is erasing sex even where there is sex in it? So what kind of tendency in this? Ah, now I will try to provide you an answer. With, uh, I claim we effectively, now this is a big psychoanalytic speculation, are entering a new era, at least in the so-called developed West, I don't envy them, where effectively, how to put it, love encounter as a couple is considered too traumatic, like yesterday, was it Hindu times or Hindustan and other ones, there was, I read it here, there was a wonderful report on how, and from Badiou I learned the same thing goes on in France, you know what's the latest fashion in Western United States? to look at the positive message of what you are supposed to know, these pre-arranged marriages. They say they are the wise solution, only instead of parents, we should have psychologists, scientists, and so on and so on. The idea is that one French agency wonderfully propagates its services, saying we will enable you to be in love without falling in love. You know, to avoid this shocking encounter, fall, we will look scientifically who is the ideal partner. And then Robert Epstein, and I read it yesterday, I think. Uh, he even claimed that he has the precise strategy of, he uses some complex term, like uh, 
emotion-enhancing practices or whatever, how he artificially, by following certain rituals, then guarantees that you will fall in love. So, uh, uh, I claim that these are no longer these old passionate couples. We are effectively entering some kind of, a, how should I call it, uh, pervert, pervert narcissistic economy where even love is reduced to some kind of a oral, oral, anal, pre-edible relationship. What do you mean by this? The same Dalian leader gave me a wonderful interpretation of, I call it somewhere, of a beautiful, simple slip of tongue mistake of one of his patients. He told me, one of his patients told him how he wanted to seduce a girl. So, they went to a restaurant, afterwards he wanted to take her to a hotel room, ah, no. but he made a slip of tongue when entering the restaurant, instead of saying a table for two please, he said a bed for two please. No? Now, it's ingenious how he interpreted this sleep, not as, oh, his dirty mind was already on, but as a kind of a fear, what his fear was that his oral instincts eating their wealth will mean more to him that he will just get fat, full, stuck, and will not be interested in himself. It was kind of a defense measure of saying to him, I must not eat too much here, I must remember that the true aim, you know, it was kind of a protective measure against oral economy. It was, I must remember, I'm really here for later, not too much of this, and so on.